in the past, we had a job to increase total shareholder return or to make the stock price the highest possible, period. It was always a struggle for me. And I, I tell you what, some people think I failed and they call me a failure. I struggled from my first day at work till the last day at work with this idea that we run a mechanical structure that people are just a clog in the wheel. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, our guest today is Ursula Burns. Ursula is a businesswoman who is most known for being the former CEO of Xerox, which she ran from 2009 to 2016. When she took the top job at Xerox after decades working her way up at the company, Ursula became the first Black woman ever to run a Fortune 500 company. She has also served on the board of some of the biggest companies in the world, including Uber, ExxonMobil, and Nestle. Her memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are, is in stores now. Ursula, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Danielle and Carly. I'm happy to be here. So you are a, a public leader, your name that we grew up knowing. And as, as we went on our own endeavor, you know, it was somebody that we, we looked up to, but you're actually like a private person. And I'm curious, what is a fun fact about you? Yeah, you found, you found one. I am actually a very private person. I say this in the book and people who read it early and who, who are reading it now are kind of surprised by the fact that I'm an introvert and pretty much a loner. In the very traditional sense of the word, I kind of like silence. I like having times that I'm isolated. And that sounds so unusual. I have two children. I had a crazy husband. And you would say, well, how did that fit into a life? But it, it's, I don't know, it's just something I've always thought about, and but I like a lot. Are you less likely to have a reality show about yourself, a TikTok, or go Instagram live? All three of them are highly unlikely. Are those all your nightmares? Yeah, these are places where you would not see me. I literally just got an Instagram account because there's a company that I'm engaged with, a private equity firm that I just started with three partners that made it very clear that not having one was probably a, not a good idea. So I, I have somebody kind of managing it. I don't have a Facebook account. I respect that. Yeah. I'm jealous. <laughs> that, that sounds great. If it could be helpful to me, I would absolutely have it. But it it generally takes away more than it gives back. So I don't, I don't use it. After reading your memoir, I think one thing that was very clear is the impact that your mom had on you and your career direction. Can you tell us a little bit about her and what it was like for you growing up? I think most people, I think, I hope a lot of people have great moms. You see people who win things and they say, thank you, mom. And so I don't want my mother to seem like a saint or angelic. She was far from either of those two things, very far from either of those two things. She had a pretty tough temper and she had very high expectations. She was very impatient. But the thing that she was not was confused. 
She was very clear and very focused about what was important in her life, what she can impact in her life positively, and what her responsibilities were. And all three of those things focused around her three children. And everything else was, in many ways, out of her control. And they were affecting her, if you know what I mean. She didn't want us to have a position that started like her position started, which was largely powerless and largely subjected to other people. There were not a lot of important decisions where we were confused about what my mother would have expected of us, or what the impact of us not doing what she wanted us to do would have been, which would have been massive disappointment. So my mother was the fairly ordinary woman with a narrow set of impact areas, and she did not underutilize that narrow set of options that she had. I was probably impacted by her even more than my brother and my sister were. I physically was home a lot with her and understood how her days went. You know, as I got older and older, I, I say this in the book, I could see her aging in front of my eyes, you know, just struggling, 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 but never joyless, like never unhappy, but definitely tired and worn out. When you were around 13, you were told you had three strikes against you. It broke my heart hearing about this. And I want you to talk to us about that moment. And when you realized these alleged strikes weren't strikes at all. Yeah, I had, it was really an interesting thing that I didn't pay a lot of attention to until much later in my life. And it's kind of, you know, you hear about these repressed memories. It was clearly not a repressed memory, but it's one of these things that didn't, yeah, I heard it and kind of you dismissed it and didn't think it was impacting me at all until I realized that it was impacting me. Meaning how this little incident, how I approached my life and my position in the world. And I was in, you know, I went to a Catholic school. My mother made no money, but her highest priority for us was a good education and the broadest education possible. And she knew that in a neighborhood that we were in, we couldn't go to public schools. I mean, at that time, it was, it was a disaster. I mean, it's still pretty bad now in some neighborhoods, but in our neighborhood at that time, the public schools were physically unsafe. And anyway, and she put us into a Catholic school and we had this guy come to speak to us. He wasn't a priest that I, I know for sure, but he came to speak to our class about something. I mean, we were given questions to ask. I was one of the people who was given a question to ask by the nuns. And then at the end of the class, you have to go up and shake his hand. When I got there, he said to me, oh, you had such a great question. You're really bright and a little bit of chit-chat. And he said, you're really smart. So it's kind of unfortunate that you have some headwinds. You're kind of black. You're a girl. And you're poor. And he didn't say it as as smoothly as I just said it. He didn't say those three. He said, you know, you have to come over, overcome the fact that whatever the heck, you know, whatever it was, I can't even remember all the words. And I remember walking away from that thinking, hmm, that's an interesting thing to say. That literally my reaction was, hmm, that's an interesting thing to say and put it away. I remember talking to my mother about it a couple of days later. And her response was one of her ongoing statements is that the world can't happen to you. You just have to happen to the world. So kind of put it aside. Many, many, many years later, when I was through college, through graduate school and working at Xerox, it came back to me. This idea that there were these attributes, positive attributes about me that were structured 
in society, in this guy's view and many other people's view as well, as strikes against me. Half the world are female. Hmm. It's a big strike against half the world. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's an eloquent way or an ineloquent way to say what the world is thinking and how the world was acting. Right? That's how the world was thinking and acting. If you were female in many parts of the world, even in the United States back then and, and still to a large extent today, you are significantly less valuable, significantly less worthy than if you're a man. And if you're a person of color, then end up. But if you look at the population in the world, two-thirds of it, more than two-thirds of it, are people of color or women. And you say to yourself, wow. And that kind of keeps rolling forward into this whole idea about supremacy and how the structure, and, and people, when, when I say supremacy and people of color say supremacy, people they have like a real visceral reaction around, oh my God, you're talking about white supremacist. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. The structures in society, the playing field, the rules, the referee, Everything about the game that we're playing in life, just about every single thing, have been designed by, specified by, judged by men, and, and largely by white men. But I don't begrudge the beginning of our time by today's standards. So I'm not going to say that. I'm, you know, I th- like I said, we go outside and we have lights on the streets, the roads are paved, we have buildings and structures. So they didn't do a whole bunch of bad stuff. <laughs> they did some really good things. But I think we have to understand, they have to understand, we have to understand that times are changing and not because we just woke up, but because the structure doesn't work anymore. It just doesn't. When two thirds of the population is not like the other third of the population and largely that third of the population owns 98% of the wealth, the power, the control, the everything, it just is not going to be sustainable for long. We have to step up our game as women and people of color and participate more lively. By the way, we're stepping up. So we got to keep stepping up. They have to keep accepting. There were two things you said that really stood out. And one was, you know, making sure that women step up and that we support that and keep stepping up and especially women of color. And then also what your mom said, and I'm not going to paraphrase it totally correctly, but the world's going to make its mark on you or you're going to make its mark on the world. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Like hearing you talk about all of this now, I mean, you've written this book, you've had the time to reflect as much as anyone can kind of piece it all together. But when you were in this mode, did people know you were going to turn into who you are today? Like, was anyone surprised? Oh, no. I think that there were, you know, the further, the older I got, the less surprising it was. But one of the things that was really beneficial for me is that I had a lot of people helping me and keeping an eye on me. We call these whatever, mentors or sponsors, whatever. But I had people early, when I gave a signal that I was ready or willing and that, or able or all three, people were there to say, oh my God, let's grab her and pull her into this. Not every single time, but large numbers of times. So I was always a talker. So I always, I always had an opinion. That's a better way to put it. I always had an opinion. And my mother would always say, you know, sometimes you're wrong and strong. So I always had a strong opinion. And she said, even if you're wrong, you had an opinion. So I always had an opinion. I was not shy to speak up. I didn't dominate a conversation in the room, but I was not, literally, if there was something wrong, I would say, isn't that red over there when everybody's looking at it and saying it's blue? I was trained to do that. 
And fortunately, around me, there were people who at critical times, but many times, most of the time, really was interested in hearing what I had to say. They didn't say, oh my God, you're too young. You don't have enough experience. Sometimes, but the vast majority of times it was like, oh my God, you're interested in that? Do you think you want to go to Japan and run this program for us? I'm like, me? They said, yeah, you were talking about this. You want to go to England and do this thing? So I found early, I got this reinforcing cycle of if I was smart enough, not base intelligence, but intellectually curious enough, did a little bit of homework, literally got passionate about things that there were more people who would help me along than not. And this idea that the world happening to me, don't sit and expect people to know who you are and what you think and how smart you are and how desirous you are of things. You have to absolutely make sure that your point of view, who you are, is in the fullest display that you feel comfortable. I want to transition to you starting off at Xerox. You started off working for an executive. I want you to tell us that story about how you got the job and also talk a little bit about executive assistant positions because I think that they can be amazing stepping stones. And I feel like sometimes people don't get that. Oh my God. I tell you, if I don't know what companies are doing nowadays, but one of the best jobs I ever had, you know, the CEO was great, running manufacturing was great, but one of the best jobs I've ever had was being the executive assistant to two executives at Xerox. One was ultimately the chairman and CEO of the company. So, you know, I joined the company like an engineer. I was just that person in the lab with a lab assistant and I would walk into the lab and eh, fine. You work, I did that for many, many, many years, loved it. It just kind of played to my loner kind of thing. I had a problem to solve. And then I get to the point, let's say eight, seven or eight years into the company, where I am now no longer an individual contributor. I'm now a project manager. And because I have to manage groups of people, make presentations to senior management, you know, I've moved out of being alone to to being larger and larger viewed. And one of the things that happened is I met this guy. His name was Waylon Hicks still alive, still a friend, very good friend, actually. And I got into a little bit of a back and forth in a meeting where we just had a disagreement. I mean, I'm relatively young in the company. He's like the number two person in the company. And we just disagreed on the subject. He said something. He answered somebody. I raised my hand and said, how dare you answer this person? He was insulting Black people. He was insulting women. You should have not answered him what you should have done. This is in front of a whole bunch of people. But if you, what you should have done is you should have basically not given his question any regard and talked about the way that he posed it and who was on. We leave the meeting. This guy calls me to his office. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just gonna, I'm going to get fired because I basically chastised this guy. Not thinking about that. That was not what I was thinking. I wasn't trying to chastise him. I was just one of the things I learned, I was just impetulant and just didn't think a lot about the best way to get my message across. But he called me in and he said, so two things. One is that there's a better way to get your message across. By the way, you were right in what you were trying to tell me, but the way you told me was totally ineffective. So that was number one. And number two, we should become friends. He's a Republican, white guy from Indiana. I don't think I had ever been to. I'm from New York. I'm a Democrat, right? I'm a black woman. He's a white man. Anyway, came very, very good friends business friends. He asked me to be his executive assistant. And I said, oh, interesting. What the heck is this thing? I said, I have a degree, five-year degree in engineering. I'm not doing any executive assisting. Thinking that I was 
above this role, thinking that he thought of me in a way that he didn't think of me, right? So it, jumping to a whole bunch of conclusions that were wrong. The reason why I tell the story is that your opening question, Danielle, is so right. If you can get a job like this in the right company, I mean, just about any company who would make you the executive assistant to one of the lead executives in the company, grab it, run home, and you know, on the way home, cheer. Just say, oh my God, I got the best job in the world. Because three things. One is it is kind of what you make it. There's some things you have to do. You have to prepare this person for his meetings. And I don't mean make sure he has, you know, toothpaste in his luggage. It was more about what does your day look? What is this? We're going on a trip. We're meeting with these business executives, these political leaders. What do you need to be effective in that way? Going to the people in the company, generally his direct team, and assuring that, that things flowed well, that he had what he needed. In order to do that, I had to understand kind of more about what he would need. And I'm sitting there in a lab in engineering. I had no idea. When we went to see the Queen of Spain, or the King of Spain, some official in Spain, and I'm thinking I'm going on a vacation to Barcelona and realized that when this was one of the early trips, no, this guy has to be prepared. He has to know the background of these people. So it drags you from your little world to this massive world of what an executive does with their time. How do they integrate their family? How do they travel? How do they present themselves? What's happening across the company? Most of the stuff you didn't even know. We're in the meeting talking to the queen or the king of Spain, and I'm in the back doing nothing because all I have to, all I have to do is take notes, make sure action items are there, that I kind of get them deployed as quickly as possible, and learning about all this stuff that we do and all these people in our company who I didn't even know. So anyway, the most amazing job in the world. I went from that job and I became the executive assistant to the chairman and CEO. So to the number two, and I did that job so well, the number two guy so well that the number one guy said, oh, yeah, I need one. He already had one. She's going on to do some other executive position. And he asked me if I would do it for him. And I said, you know, I don't think so. I, I kind of did this already. I kind of know what's going on. I passed. Wow. You passed on it. Yeah. yeah. He said to me, excuse me? I said, yeah, I, I don't want to do this. I said, but it seems like I'm doing something wrong. Tell me what that was. And I, Why should I do it? So can, tell me why. I, should, I don't think so. Why should I do it? He said, Ursula, I'm the chairman and CEO. I asked you to do it. And the best reason for you to do it is that I'm the chairman and CEO and I asked you to do it. Plain and simple. <laughs> That's a great answer. Yeah, I made a mistake. And that turned out to be almost a two-year assignment that was absolutely amazing. And so you get one guy who's running a major part of the company, but now you get the guy who's running everything, who has to be prepared for in board meetings. I knew that we had boards, but I had no idea what happened. I didn't even know who the members were. And literally, I take over as his executive assistant. And I, you know, really soon after that, I walk into a board meeting with him. And I have to, I sit in, you can't sit in the whole thing, but it's to make sure he's prepared, to make sure that the board is well cared for and prepared. If some of the stuff is pretty boring, they don't know how to get to the bathroom, you know, it's down to the left. But there's so much more to it than that. You can see how they are bosses in the company of the bosses of the company. And that whole relationship, I learned that in, you know, 15 years into 20 years into the company, I literally was sitting not in any position of leadership or authority. I was sitting in major portions of board meetings and got to know board members. And that's why if somebody asks you to do something like this, generally, I say this in the book, 
Executives don't want you to fail generally. So I always say, assume the best. If they're asking you to do something, your first reaction is sure. And I love what you said about those roles because we get asked all the time, how do you get the foot in the door? And yet I feel like there's this hesitation for people now to do EA roles. What happened is we got ahead of ourselves, particularly the, and I'm going to get beat up for this, I know it, the younger generation who actually believe that since they know all this stuff, you can read it on the internet. So you get really familiar with these people. You never met them, but you're very familiar with them and you can even email them or whatever you do. That phase that we're in, there are all these young entrepreneur, billionaires, eh, all this stuff. People who come out of college and believe that, oh, I've done it already, so can I now become the executive in the company? This whole um, not going through steps has made it that people actually don't want to take the time to learn, to be subservient, because you are definitely subservient as an EA, and to learn and to use it to your advantage. The more you know, the better it is, the less you have to work further down the path. So I, I think that we're in a phase now where staying with companies so that you can develop the rest of yourself, staying longer in roles is for larger companies, particularly it's coming back in vogue. This idea that every two years you have to find a new place to live and a whole new set of people to work with is very unsettling. I want to talk about leadership style. Mm -hmm. You wrote in the book that Xerox suffered from a culture of, and I'm going to quote you, terminal niceness. You are not known for a leadership style of terminal niceness. And I really want to understand, and I think it's related a little bit to what we're talking about now, of what your leadership style is and why you feel it's been effective and also where you feel like you've had to grow it. Today, I have a leadership style that is distinctly not the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> Come to a meeting with me. I say this all the time. If you guys are going to all be silent, I'll send you all home and take all your pay and I'll make all the decisions myself. I have learned over time that I know very little about certain things and that I don't have the patience or the propensity to learn about pensions or the legal structure of XYZ or the inherent balance sheet risk of this transaction. Very good at other things. And it's important for me to have a team around me, just like every team member has to have a team around them, that makes them a complete business leader and person. And I, I say this all the time. We have, I just formed a new company with three other principals. There are four principals. It's a PE firm called Integrum. And we did this design of the organization. So that when you look at the four of us together, we look like the perfect human. If any of us are alone, you would say, my God, that person's missing this, this person's missing that. And that's what happened to me at work. That's the kind of style that I have at work, that I have to have people around the table with me, and then therefore they have people around the table with them that cover their blind spots and they cover my weaknesses, right? One is very, very collaborative. To extremely impatient. This idea that we can actually go through a whole bunch of presentations and 15 slides, and at the end of the day, we listen to all of the crap and we learn nothing. We found nothing out. Or we say, even better, you know, that was the greatest presentation in the world. And you, they walk out the room and we say, well, that was bull. I, this was the terminal niceness piece. I'm like, if we thought that, I don't want to destroy the guy, generic man or woman in the room, particularly if they're junior. So, but we got to give them some coaching tips because if they think that that was great, every time that they go forward, they're going to build on that thing that we actually just really said was not great. 
So the second is I do believe I'm fairly impatient. And I believe that particularly leadership teams have to kind of behave with each other like families. They have to literally trust each other. They have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. They literally have to call them when they're flagging off or whatever the hell. This is not about the oracle on high giving directions or about people taking a nap in the room. We are there together to lead generally what's pretty tough, complex organizations. We can't do it alone. The last piece is that there is a tone in the company that is defined by the leaders and ultimately by the leader. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure is that we didn't send a lot of confusing signals when we had people who acted on my behalf, on behalf of the company. And so I always said to the team around me, you have to know about me, my style, my approach, not my personal life, because I want all of the people around the team, my eight direct people, to be me when they go out. I can't be everywhere. It's too, you know, we had too many people. So Don Lu, my general counsel, would go and represent Xerox. He had to represent it in fullness, right? Uh, he didn't have to understand every single detail, but he had to be confident in our culture and our values. He had to be confident in our strategy. He had to be confident in our approach to people. We had some really important things that made Xerox hum. He had to be confident enough, just like I had to be, because I did it all the time. He had to be as well, and all of the team members. So I lead from this this perspective of we're all in this together. We have to kind of pull the ship forward. I am pretty frank. I don't like particularly um, of senior people. I don't like coasting. I don't like lack of opinions. You know, if you don't have an opinion, I'm fine with that. But this idea that you have it and you tell me later or you say later, which is even the worst thing, I always knew that wasn't going to work. That's a fireable offense. If you literally say to me that you always knew it wasn't going to work and you saw us running towards this thing and never said it, what the heck is that? Those are the kinds of things that drive me crazy. And I am pretty outspoken. But I think if you talk to anybody who's worked with me or for me, I have the biggest soft spot for people. My biggest mistakes are always that I literally think a human is totally recoverable. It's given me every example that they're never going to make it. I, and I'm like, no, if we give them a coach, maybe they'll get there. Give them, you know, give them a new team member who can cover their blind spot. And, and the whole organization is watching me saying, don't you get it? This person is useless and I'm trying to fix them. So I do have this other soft spot for, and this dislike for dislocating people by having them be unemployed. <laughs> I just don't like this idea because it is a devastating action, even if you have money to be asked to leave a, a company. So I try to avoid it at all cost. And sometimes I try to avoid it for too long and, it, and it, it becomes useless. Before we go into our lightning round, one question that I really would love to hear your take on, especially how we started this with you. And I really meant this, like I'm jealous that you're not on all the social platforms. <laughs> how have you seen the role of CEO transform over the past few years? Yeah, I, I think some CEOs have been doing this for more than the past few years, but I think that the discourse around the role of the CEO over the past few years are pushing more and more people to think about it. In the past, we had a job to increase total shareholder return or to make the stock price the highest possible, period. It was always a struggle for me. And I, I tell you what, some people think I failed and they call me a failure. I struggled from my first day at work 
till the last day at work with this idea that we run a mechanical structure that people are just a clog in the wheel. I mean, obviously that doesn't make sense to a lot of us. What's happened now with business leaders, what's happening now because of society, governments, social organizations, and individual humans have said, wait a minute, this idea of increasing shareholder return as the ultimate measure of the success of an enterprise is just wrong. It can't be that, right? If you do that and you pass workers suffering, which happens a lot, right? You increase your profits by literally lowering the number of employees that you have, squeezing wages, whatever the heck you do. And then we have social programs, welfare, whatever the heck they are that we actually transfer the burden to, federal, state, and local government. This idea that we can actually make products that have a negative impact on the globe and make a whole shitload of money off of them. In the beginning, we didn't know that this was a problem. Let's look at something like plastics, single-use plastics. Great solution, right? Because it was glass before. Now we know that this stuff is probably not the best thing in the world. If we know that, literally society should be looking at us saying, you got three years. Figure out a friggin' solution. I know it's going to be more expensive. I know it's going to be more expensive to start, but companies didn't have to do that before because they had one thing that the shareholders kept them enrolled for. One thing, shareholder value. What's happening now? You guys, us guys are starting to yell and say, no more. We want people in our communities to stay employed. We want them to have reasonable wages. My goodness, we can't have people living in New York City who work full-time, who get paid $8 an hour. And literally they live in poverty. They have a full-time job. These kinds of things, right? Look at the C-suite of companies. The C-suite and the directors, all male, all white. Citizens are saying no more. I can't do that. I want, I buy your stuff. <laughs> I buy your stuff. I didn't, last time I looked, I'm not male or white. How can you not have me participate? Even further, we have people who believe, governments who believe that the right to vote is for some, but not for others. Just based on how they look, where they live, whatever, how they vote. And companies have to say, no, no, I'm not going to tell you about how to vote. I don't, you know, Democrat, Republican, for or against this candidate. But the ability to vote is something that this nation is built on. And we support citizens' rights with the right laws, you know, right? There can't be illegal, uh, all that stuff, to vote, to be silent on that. And then when they're pushed, there's two answers. One, it's not my business. It's not your business. Immigration policy they talk on, tax policy they talk on, that's their business. That's the way that the world works. That's their business. This voting is the same thing. So I think that companies no longer, and business leaders no longer, very tricky time, but they can no longer just sit back and say, I, shareholder value, that's all it is. I don't have anything. I don't want to, you know, wages, I, you know, that, I don't know. It's, uh, that's you guys determine. Pollution, you guys determine. Women's rights, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I, I can't get involved. It's too complicated for me. It's not, I literally am on a board that literally the leader says that the politicians should do politics. I said, since when is the right of a woman in politic? Anyway, I, I think we're at a point now, not because they're highly interested in getting involved in this because it is risky. It's not about your opinion. It's about your company's position in the nation and in the world, right? So you got to be able to separate those things. Yeah. I'm going to move to our lightning round because I want to make sure we, we do it fast. Rapid fire, like one word answers. What is the one show that makes you laugh out loud? Jeopardy. <laughs> that 
made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Have you ever tried to be a guest host? No. What is a secret hobby or skill? Reading. Ursa, I really enjoy you. Running for political office or not running for political office? Not yes running or no. for political, political office, no. Good cook or not a good cook? Good cook. Okay, last question. Who should we have on the show? Kamala Harris. Yes, we yes. agree. Ursula, you're amazing and it is a real honor to, to talk to you and Thank congratulations you. on the book. It's fantastic. Thank you both. You guys are an impressive little team here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. <laughs>